surgical resident came in one day and told me, well, my lab tests were getting a little better, things were moving in the right direction. And I really wanted to laugh at him because I felt miserable. They said, well, you know, you may have a, you may have a serious problem. Welcome to Lifespan. I'm your host, Jackie Wolf. On Lifespan, you'll hear stories about healthcare. Each episode is bound by a common theme, chronic illness, substance abuse, accidents, depression. The topics will keep coming. Every story is deeply personal. Some suggest better ways to communicate with healthcare providers. Other stories describe the lessons learned by patients. But perhaps most importantly, each story teaches us something about the American healthcare system. Sudden, unexplained catastrophic illnesses are among the most perplexing cases for doctors and terrifying for patients. In Doug Mann's case, doctors at multiple medical centers couldn't figure out why he was experiencing a rapidly spreading paralysis in his legs. Doug had always been active. He was an avid tennis player. He chopped his own wood. He was also well-educated about medicine and the medical system. In his 50s, when he became sick, he was a newly retired medical school professor who had taught the importance of evidence-based medicine to medical students. Even though he was armed with years of accumulated knowledge, it was months before he received a proper diagnosis and appropriate treatment. So my story begins in 2013, and I was really feeling on top of the world at that time. I had met Tina in February that year. She became my fiance and the love of my life, and I was very active. And I was also pretty happy that I was eligible to retire at a young age of about 54 uh, after working for 30 years. And we went to a little family vacation up in Wisconsin to see family and friends. And uh, one evening I noticed some tingling and a bit of numbness in my feet and my buttocks, and, I, and of course I minimized it. I thought, I need to do some stretching. So I did a little stretching. We got home a couple of days later. This numbness and tingling didn't go away, it got worse. And I went to the doctor about a week later, and they said, well, you know, you may have a, you may have a serious problem. You may need to see a, a spinal surgeon. They referred me to one. What kind of tests did they run at that point? They looked at an x-ray of the lower part of my back and thought, well, maybe it's deteriorated a bit, you know, and maybe you've got some nerves coming out from the, the spinal cord there that are being pinched or affected by the, the vertebrae. And they said, maybe I need to see a spinal surgeon. So I went to see one. And he said I needed to see a neurologist. So I got to see a neurologist right away, and I thought, you know, this is great. Instead of getting bounced around among different kinds of specialists for a long time, I was probably with the right specialty right away. Going right to the source of the problem. That's what you thought. Yeah. So this appeared to be a neurological problem. So the neurologist examined me, and he pretty quickly got a diagnostic idea, which, of course, is a pattern recognition thing. Just like you or I, we look at a dog and we know it's a dog. We don't have to add up the features and say, that. well, I guess this is a dog. So he, he had seen things like this before, decreased sensation and muscle control in the lower half of my body. And he said pretty quickly, I had Guillain-Barre syndrome. Guillain-Barre syndrome, something causes the immune system to flare up 
and it actually attacks your own tissues and it attacks the nerves typically in the outer or peripheral parts of the body in your arms and legs. And it can be very serious because if it, if it attacks the nerves that control the muscles that help you breathe, you could die. And people have ended up on respirators with Guillain-Barre. But usually, if people do okay, they, they're, the nerves start healing on their own after three or four weeks, and then there's a slow recovery process. Since I had worked at a medical school for quite a long time, I did my own research, and I found at least two plausible explanations for what was happening to me. And one was Guillain-Barre syndrome, and the other one was called transverse myelitis. So in transverse myelitis, instead of the nerves in the outer parts of your body being attacked by the immune system, the nerves in the spinal cord would be attacked by the immune system, and that could affect the outer parts of your body. Because, you know, the nerves branch out from the spinal cord and control you know, all the muscle functions in our body. And in the meantime, Doug, a number of weeks have passed. Have your symptoms gotten worse? My symptoms were just gradually getting worse, but I wasn't too worried yet because three or four weeks hadn't passed yet, and it could still be Guillain-Barre, which has a better prognosis or a better likely outcome. I didn't want it to be transverse myelitis because with that condition, about a third of the people get it, don't have any recovery at all. And a third have a partial recovery and a third have a pretty full recovery. Well, that didn't sound too great, but I still knew it was a possibility. So I wanted to bring this up with this neurologist. And he seemed like a great neurologist. He was in his 50s and he had a weathered little brown neurologist bag with all of his stuff for doing neurological examinations. So I made a mistake. And this is something that people should remember. If you get in a situation where you think a physician has rushed to a diagnosis, and you know doctors are human beings and their brains work just like everybody else's. Our brains are wired to jump to conclusions, but they're supposed to question that. They're supposed to develop a list of diagnostic possibilities and work through that list with tests. So that was a mistake on my part. Then the neurologist made a mistake. You know, he, he took my simplistic yes-no question, do you think I have transverse myelitis? He just said no. So he, he brushed off my idea. And we should talk a little bit about when you say they make a list, that's what a differential diagnosis is. Yes, a differential diagnosis. Because a lot of problems, particularly in neurology, the symptoms that people have overlap. They could be a number of different possible diseases, especially when you get into autoimmune diseases like this. And what doctors do is, I mean, literally they should, at least in their, if, if not on paper, in their head, they should make a list. And then as you say, they should cross things out. They should very deliberately go through and say, well, I can rule this out because whether it was a test or whether you don't have the appropriate symptoms, they would literally cross it out. And particularly in neurology, sometimes the last disease standing is the diagnosis. They call those diagnoses of exclusion. Right off the bat, I asked the question the wrong way, and he brushed off a diagnostic idea and stuck with Guillain-Barre syndrome. So since people get better by themselves, after a while I went home and waited to get better. But I got worse. And we accumulated canes and then walkers and, and then I had Thanksgiving dinner about a month after this all started, sitting in a wheelchair. 
We talked about, jokingly, we have left over down in storage an, an entire adult mobility museum. You know, every device known to, to man, and I worked my way down through those devices as I lost the use of my legs. So things were getting pretty bad at that point. You know, I was losing my ability to, to move. My digestive system wasn't working. Were you frightened? Oh, yeah, I was frightened. And it's funny, when you start to have something that could be serious, you, you start to regress, you know, and your focus kind of narrows, and you're just kind of going from day to day, hoping that you're going to get better. And even though I had, you know, some medical knowledge, bits and pieces from working in medical education for 26 years, I wasn't applying that particularly well. Doug had really enjoyed working at a medical school. He had a PhD in experimental psychology and taught medical students how to interpret clinical research articles. But when he was the one who was sick, he found it hard to apply his knowledge to his own situation. You know, one of the things that people need to remember when you get seriously ill, you've got to recruit advocates for yourself. You've got to have, you know, some emotional support, a family member, somebody who can look things up, and keep an eye on what's going on with your medical care because when you're in the middle of it, you can't do it for yourself. And you had two ideal advocates. You had Tina, your fiancé, who was absolutely devoted to your care, and you had your daughter, Claire, who's a nurse. Yes, and they were, they were, my, they were my key advocates. Um, you know, Tina stuck with me throughout the whole illness, and like I mentioned, we had only been together for eight months, but she juggled her full-time job and driving to another city and staying as much as a week at a time and sometimes sleeping in a chair in my room, and she was there for me. I was stuck in bed a lot, and in early December, Tina noticed that one of my f feet looked kind of red and warm, and she called my daughter Claire. Claire took one look at it and said, called the emergency medical service and had me hauled to the uh, emergency room. And that was a good call because they scanned my leg and they found that I had blood clots in my right leg. That's very deadly because pulmonary embolism from blood clots can kill you. I had a pulmonary embolism as part of this, a sm very small one, and I didn't even notice it, but they saw it on one of the imaging tests. So I was in serious trouble at that point from being immobilized and getting blood clots. And we should emphasize, this was actually caused by your immobility. It wasn't, it wasn't caused by whatever mysterious illness you had. It was caused because you weren't able to walk anymore. Absolutely. Immobility is dangerous. When you stop moving your body, you know, you're in trouble. I remembered what a physician had told me when I was interviewing for my job at the medical school. He just said, life is motion. You have to keep things moving. Our bodies have to move or all kinds of bad things can happen really fast. So that affected my approach to, to recovery later. In the emergency room, they injected me with a blood thinner to try to help mediate the effect of these clots and stuck me in an ambulance and sent me to a major medical center. I ended up spending seven weeks at the medical center. I had a very good attitude about being taken care of in the hospital. 
I know how hard doctors and nurses work. I knew they were on my side. And I also knew I was completely at their mercy, and I needed to be nice to them and appreciate what they were doing. Listen, let me confirm, because I went up at one point to visit you in the hospital, and you were then pretty immobilized. They still they didn't have a diagnosis at that point, and yet you had a sense of humor. You were kind to everyone around you. You did not complain even once. I certainly wouldn't have blamed you for being grouchy. You would have been completely blameless because you were in an incredibly frustrating, frightening situation, and yet you treated it all with such grace and dignity. It was an incredible thing to see. Well, thank you. It, I think I just thought, you know, why not be positive? What's going to produce the best outcome? The doctors and nurses are going to do their best work if I cooperate, if I'm appreciative. And I'm happy to go day by day and, and s- try to find out what's happening and, and see, you know, how much of my life I could get back. So anyway, I got sent to the major medical center. And as you know, hospitals are not restful places. You get interrupted constantly. You're lucky if you go two hours even at night without an interruption to get a medication or just to be checked on. And that's another reason why you have to have advocates for you because you can't do your best for yourself. And we should say, too, Claire and Tina are not retiring women. They, you know, if they need to speak up, they will speak up. Yes, they were willing to speak up and be assertive on my behalf. So I got to the major medical center, and I had a whole new team of neurologists. And right away, they ordered an MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, of my spine and confirmed what I had thought. I had transverse myelitis. I had been right. I had given the correct diagnosis to my first neurologist, and he had rejected it because he hadn't done the differential diagnosis process. So I didn't just have transverse myelitis. A long section of my spinal cord was pretty chewed up, so they called it longitudinal extended transverse myelitis. So that was the first correct diagnosis that I got. So I was in big trouble at that point. My immune system was still chewing on my spinal cord, and my spinal cord was all inflamed, and they had to calm down my immune system. And of course, at that point, the question is also, what is causing your immune system to react this way? And that they didn't know at all at this point. Right. At this point, transverse myelitis is a diagnosis, but it's also sort of a syndrome. It needs another explanation as to why. And my neurologists were very concerned because my spinal cord was chewed up over a long area in the middle region, the thoracic part of the spine, from the fourth thoracic vertebrae all the way down to the 12th, a long area. And that's why it was affecting the lower half of my body because the nerves that come out from that lower part control the functions of your legs, and also the bladder, digestive system are all controlled by that part of the spinal cord. So I was in big trouble. And that's so interesting because we think of our digestive system, it's just automatic. We don't think that there are, that our spinal cord is any relationship necessarily to our digestive system. Yes. Just like everything else in our bodies, it's more complicated than we think. I think there are some things that work fairly automatically, but there are necessary signals from the spinal cord that weren't getting through for my digestive system to move along properly and for my bladder to work properly, and I was getting miserable pretty fast. 
So they needed to calm my immune system down and knock down the inflammation. And the perfect thing to do that, to accomplish both things, was steroids, like prednisone. A normal dosage of steroids for something like a skin infection might start out with 50 milligrams and taper off very quickly over a week's time to nothing, or 20 milligrams, some modest amount. They needed to give me 1,000 milligrams a day for five days. I was scared because I'd heard of steroid rage, and I thought, I hope I don't get cranky and wild because of this. And the first night, I only slept about four hours, but I didn't um, get upset. So the only good thing about this was it was so short-term that even with that huge dose after five days, they could just stop. They didn't need to taper it off. And after a couple of days, I got my first progress in terms of having lost my mobility and my legs becoming paralyzed. I started having the ability to move a couple of my toes. That was the first real, real sign of progress. But I, I had a long way to go at that point. You know, physical therapists came in and started helping me move my legs, and they did another treatment called plasmapheresis. If there was anything in my blood that would, antibodies, that would cause my, you know, immune system to keep attacking my spinal cord, they wanted to filter that out. So I got new plasma. Describe what plasmapheresis is. Well, plasmapheresis is basically carefully pumping your blood out of your body and filtering out, saving the, the red blood cells and replacing the, most of the rest of it, the plasma, with a new plasma product. So apparently the, the things that would keep the immune system enraged were in, would be in the plasma. So that, that was all filtered out and replaced. I got my red blood cells back. They mix it back together and put it back in you. And it takes multiple sessions over about a week's time. You're attached to these tubes for about an hour at a time every couple of days until, you know, they feel like they've pretty well flushed all your old plasma out of your system and replaced it with new plasma. All this seemed to be helping, but they still didn't know what was causing my immune system to attack my spinal cord so vigorously over such a long area. And they were considering some serious autoimmune diseases that could have been chronic, one of which would have ended up going into my eyes and maybe I would go blind. And I started to hear about these and got a little scared. But all the tests were coming back negative. We should explain autoimmune diseases. They manifest in many different forms, but the, the rubric autoimmune illness simply means your body is attacking itself. Your body's immune system turns on your own body. I became very aware that our immune systems are on this razor's edge all the time between making two kinds of errors. If the immune system isn't vigilant enough, it misses an, a dangerous invader and we get sick. If our immune system gets too vigilant, it starts treating some of our own tissues, like parts of our spinal cord, as invaders and, and damaging our own bodies. As Doug pointed out, our immune system is life-saving. But... Medical research now shows that it can sometimes be a source of health problems. More illnesses than doctors ever suspected seem to have an autoimmune component. So they were running all of these tests, and uh, it was still a mystery. So they MRI scanned my whole body, section by section by section, just looking for what was going on. And somebody noticed there was something in my abdomen that looked like it didn't belong. It appeared that I had a tumor in my abdomen that looked like it was connected to my appendix, but also kind of connected to my the descending colon, the last part of your, of your 
bowel. And they needed to figure out what this was. So they did a special test, starting out like a colonoscopy and colonoscopy going up inside my bowel, but with a special piece of equipment. And they literally took needles and poked them through the wall of the bowel into the tumor in order to get samples. And the stuff was coming out as almost all liquid with no cells. So they poked it seven or eight times through the wall of my bowel to get enough cells for a pathologist to look at and try to figure out what it was. Was this done under general anesthesia? Yes, I was, I was anesthetized, and they had imaging to guide this process of doing you know, what we know of as a needle biopsy. But they were up inside my colon, poking through the wall of the colon into the tumor to get a needle biopsy sample. At this point, have they connected your transverse myelitis with a mucinous tumor? My lead neurologist looked at that tumor and thought, okay, that was probably the cause of the problem. Because most people think of cancer, you know, as just wreaking havoc, you know, wherever it grows physically in your body. And it can metastasize to go to your lungs, your brain, and grow in other places and, and, and kill you. But there's another aspect to cancer that a lot of people aren't aware of, and it's referred to as perineoplastic syndrome, which just means cancer can wreak havoc on your body in other ways. It can cause abnormal signals to your immune system. My neurologist said that tumor was causing your immune system to attack your own body, and it just happened to attack the middle part of my spinal cord. So that appeared to be the cause. So I have a diagnosis that's a real mouthful. They would say I have longitudinal extended transverse myelitis secondary via perineoplastic syndrome to a mucinous appendiceal neoplasm. So that's, that's a mouthful. One rare condition caused another rare condition. And you can still say it. Oh, I can can still say it. That's going to be a hard one to forget. When I was in the hospital, I was formally under the care of the neurological service. But the minute I had a tumor, unbeknownst to me, my care was shifted to a different department. I was now under the care of the cancer surgeons. But you were still physically in the neurology ward. Yes, I was still, I believe, in the neurology ward. And we should explain that all this is significant because specialists tend to focus on their area, that if you are labeled a neurology patient, they think neuro. If you're labeled a cancer patient, they think cancer. If you're labeled an allergy patient, they only think allergy. Yes, and that became the source of a problem because I was still a neurological patient because I had a neurological diagnosis, but I also had a tumor in my abdomen. So all of a sudden, I belonged to the surgical oncologist. And as you know, surgeons like to do surgery. And teams of surgical oncologists started to come in, and they looked pretty excited, like they could barely restrain themselves because I had this mysterious tumor in my abdomen And, you know, they kind of wanted to operate because that's what surgeons do. But they needed a reason to do so. So they started looking at my imaging and they thought, well, maybe he has an obstruction. 
an obstruction, you know, is an emergency. And they would need to go in and operate and take care of that obstruction. And they could take this interesting little tumor out at the same time and do me a lot of good. At that point, I hadn't eaten much for weeks because my digestive system just wasn't moving. I'd lost about 35 pounds. I was weak. I was very uncomfortable. I really wasn't a great candidate for surgery at that point, unless it was a truly an emergency. My daughter looked at the images of my bowels, and she pointed out to the surgeons that it didn't look like an obstruction at all. My digestive system was simply full because it wasn't moving properly. Fortunately, to back her up, my neurologist came by and reminded the surgical oncologist that I had a neurological condition. They call it neurogenic ileus, which just means, you know, a nervous system problem is causing the bowels to move very slowly, if at all, because they're not getting the right signals. The surgical oncologist kind of almost conjured up the idea that there was an obstruction because that would have required surgery and they could have gotten that tumor at the same time. I was dumbfounded. They actually scheduled time in a surgical suite. You know, they were ready. They were kind of ready to go. I was dumbfounded because this major medical center had an electronic medical record and they would have had access to my record and they should have seen that I had neurogenic ileus, that my bowels were simply moving slowly because of the spinal cord problem. So there was really no excuse to cook up this idea of an obstruction. If your daughter hadn't stepped in, you very well might have, probably would have ended up in a surgical suite. I might have ended up having an unnecessary and dangerous surgery when I was in a seriously weakened state. If my daughter and the neurologist hadn't intervened and said, hey guys, he just has a neurological problem that slowed his digestive system down. The good news was I got referred to a cancer surgeon in that group who specialized in the strange little kind of tumor that I had in my abdomen. It was a fairly rare one called a mucinous appendiceal neoplasm, which just means it was a tumor on my appendix that was producing this gunk called mucin that would very slowly kind of start to fill up my abdominal cavity, which doesn't sound so bad, but if it continues relentlessly, it starts to put pressure on organs and organs start to fail. And I think that would be a pretty horrible way to die. And that was the liquid they kept getting when they were trying to do the biopsy puncturing through your bowel, that they kept getting liquid, liquid, liquid. It was this mucinous gunk? I think so, but the thing was that the tumor was also producing mucin and filling up slowly but relentlessly, filling up the abdominal cavity. So I did have a condition that was going to require surgery, but fortunately this specialist said, you need to get your strength up for a few months, and then, then we'll do the surgery to take care of you. After about four weeks in the hospital part of the medical center, I went over to the inpatient rehab and physical therapy unit. I needed to learn to walk again and build up some strength. And the physical therapists are wonderful. I think they're wonderful people. They're always challenging you, and they get you just a little bit out of your comfort zone. The minute you get comfortable, it's time to move on to something slightly more challenging. And that became a really important lesson for me. I've, I've internalized that as a life lesson. It's like if you want to make progress, if you're facing some big challenge, you're probably going to have to get out of your comfort zone, but you just try to do it in a safe way. 
You don't know, you know what you can do or how far you can get until you try. And these are cliches, but they became a really important part of my life after going through this medical experience. Cliches become cliches for a reason. That's right. I started walking between parallel bars and walking down the hall in a walker and finally got into a private room, spent Christmas there in the, in the rehab unit, and then New Year's. And then my birthday in January passed while I was still at the, at the medical center. And uh, finally, after three weeks in rehab and a total of uh, seven weeks at the medical center, I was ready to go home. My mother and Tina looked at me when I first got home, and they, I looked so bad. I was so gaunt. They said, well, if he makes it through the night, maybe he'll actually live. And I wasn't quite that bad off, but I looked at myself in the mirror, and I hardly recognized myself at that point. I went to a local physical therapist and challenged myself at home, and I was still using a walker and sometimes a wheelchair. I got stronger. I was determined to start doing my chores at home again and start to try to get my life back. One of the things I do is split firewood and run a wood stove, and it was late January at this point in 2014. So I decided to go out to the wood pile and get some firewood. But I was very weak, and my balance was bad, and the ground was uneven. So I went out in the back, and I'm carrying my firewood bag, and I'm taking little tiny sideways steps, and I make it to the wood pile, and I put two or three pieces of wood in the bag, and I lift it up and move it over, set it down, take some little steps, pick it up, move it over, set it down. And I slowly made it back to the house that way. It probably took me 10 minutes to get three pieces of firewood, but I was... Uh, determined to get my life back. Let me say, Doug, I've seen you split firewood. No matter how big the log is, you know, I think it takes you three swift blows to split the wood. That's how strong traditionally you are. Now, at this point, you still have the mucinous tumor. And what have doctors told you about that? Do they plan to remove it at some point? The surgical oncologist who specialized in these kind of things said it's got to come out, but it's not urgent. You need to get some strength back. We'll try it about four months from now in May. So in May of 2014, I had regained most of my weight, and I was stronger and moving around better, and I was ready to go back to the medical center for surgery. I was under for seven and a half hours. Were they anticipating that? Yes, they anticipated that as a long surgery for two main reasons. They have to do a meticulous job of cleaning all that gunk, the mucin, out of your abdomen, because otherwise there might be some cancerous cells in that that would just cause the problem to slowly grow and reemerge and start gunking up your abdomen all over again. So they do a really thorough job of cleaning you out, and that takes hours. And then, once they have you cleaned out pretty well, they sew you most of the way back up. And I have, I have an incision that's probably 14 inches long, a scar. They sew you most of the way back up, and they bring out this special chemotherapy solution. And they run it into your abdomen through a tube, and they sort of fill up your cleaned-out abdominal cavity with the chemotherapy solution. And then they heat it up somehow, which makes it more deadly to cancer cells. And then some poor surgical resident had to stand there while I was unconscious and jiggle my belly for like an hour by hand 
to distribute the chemotherapy solution and make sure it got behind all the organs that I had left because I lost a couple of organs during the surgery to get at all of the, any cancer cells that might be floating around in there. So what organs, they obviously they removed the appendix, which the mucinous tumor was attached to the appendix. Right. The, so the appendix is gone. I finally got my appendectomy the, the hard way. Sometimes the mucin makes plaques. So I lost my gallbladder and my spleen because they're too soft to scrape. But they had plaques on them. Are mucinous cells always cancerous? No, the mucin itself is not cancerous, but I guess there can be cancer cells floating around anywhere in that mucin, and they can attach to organs and start like growing a new little colony. And if they miss a little bit of that, of the cancerous cells, like maybe a little bundle two millimeters across, that could grow back into a new tumor, and you're right back into the same problem. So that's why it was a seven and a half hour surgery. So that heated chemotherapy thing was a wonderful innovation because it really improves your likely outcome, it makes it much less likely for the cancer to come back. And you don't need any chemotherapy treatment after that? That is your chemotherapy that treatment. That was all the chemotherapy I had, and I didn't have any side effects from it. So that was, that, was, that was pretty magical. That was an innovation that was introduced within the last 15 or 20 years. So that surgery went really well, and the recovery was rough. My digestive system stopped working again for a while, which they expected. I lost 30 pounds again. In two weeks. And the scraping they had to do inside my abdomen irritated my diaphragm. And I had hiccups nonstop for about three days. And I really could, could hardly sleep or get any, any rest at all. It was, it was a miserable thing. Um, and I was weak. And um, it was kind of a low point. And at that point, a surgical resident came in one day and told me, well, my lab tests were getting a little better. Things were moving in the right direction. And I really wanted to laugh at him because I felt miserable. But what he said stayed with me, and it actually became something I really came to value, something to remember. You know, be glad if things are moving in the right direction. Even a tiny bit, if you have a serious illness, be patient. Hope it continues. Maybe that will accumulate into a significant recovery. So I, th I think I mentioned about the physician who had told me the, the life is motion story. And that, that really came back to me at that point. I was very weak after the surgery, but I was like, I've got to move. I've got to move. So the second day after the surgery, it's like, I want to walk. And I, you know, I could walk maybe 20 steps. I slowly got up to laps around the hall. And maybe that was enough to protect me from having you know, another complication. So I got up and, and moved. And so two weeks later, I was ready to go home again. And for whatever reason, I just decided to look at it as the glass half full. You know, whatever I could get back was great. And it probably wouldn't be everything. So I started walking longer distances, and I started to work out in the woods. I started driving again. That was a white-knuckle thing at first <laughs> because my sensation was a little reduced. Um, eventually, I rode a bicycle again, and I started cutting down trees, chopping wood again. And a couple of years later, I thought, well, I'm walking pretty well. I wonder if I could jog. So I started doing slow jogging, and I found out I enjoyed this routine of walking out and jogging home and walking out and jogging home. And then recently, almost four years after this whole illness started, 
I picked up a new game called Pickleball. And it's a doubles game, so you don't have to cover too much area. And I found to my surprise after playing a few times that I started moving better. And I could, you know, crouch down and, and move and, and hit the ball. I still have a, a constant level of discomfort in my legs. They buzz and tingle and feel tight all the time. And I don't have full control of my muscles. And I can't run very fast at all. But I feel like I got my life back. I can actually do everything that I really need to do and about 90% of what I want to do. You don't play tennis anymore, though. I don't play tennis anymore, but I'm thinking I might be able to try it again and play a little doubles and just expect to move a little slower and not get to every ball. That's going to happen as, as, as I age anyway. But a final thing to remember is that one of the hardest things for doctors to do is to predict how an individual person is going to do after a serious illness. You know, we prognosis, they call it. It's just not an exact science. People vary widely in how they do after a serious illness. My neurologist, my lead neurologist at the medical center was wonderful, but she told me that, um, you know, about a year after you know, the illness starts and you get your initial treatment, you'll, you'll pretty much know what kind of recovery you're going to have. You know, and the transverse myelitis was likely to produce some permanent disability of some kind. But she was wrong about that in my case. You know, I have continued to make slow progress for a period of almost four years. Part of that is adapting. I think our bodies, it's amazing what our bodies can adapt to. I don't have all that. My signals are garbled a little bit between my spinal cord and the lower half of my body. But somehow I think my brain has learned to adapt to that and I can do more than I expected to be able to do. You were so persistent, and you had such a great support system, and you were so athletic before. It's a possibility for everyone, but it's very rare for doctors to see this because so many people aren't as persistent and athletic as you are. Yes, and I was fortunate. I was persistent, but a lot of people are heroically persistent, and they just have relentlessly progressive illnesses or horrible metastatic cancer or whatever. The last thing I'd want to do is to make people feel bad, like if you were persistent enough that you should get better. And that's just putting a burden on people that they shouldn't have. But on the other hand, if you're likely to get some recovery, why not see how much you can get? Why not go for it? But you have to do it carefully. So the, these, these, these things I suggested that people remember have become a part of my, my worldview and my outlook. And People should remember, if you get seriously ill, you have to know the right language to use if you want to question your doctor's decisions. That'll really get their attention. A little bit of doctor language. How are you going to rule out this? I looked it up, and here's the medical journal we found the information in, a reputable source of information. You have to recruit your advocates, your emotional advocates and your medical advocates. To make progress, you've got to get out of your comfort zone. But just try to do it in a safe way. You can do that for yourself, one little level of difficulty at a time. 
kind of like your own personal video game with all those levels. You just kind of work it and just see how far you can get. Don't worry about it. It is so great. And I just, you know, want to repeat, question, 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 because doctors make errors. Doctors, you know, don't always think through. Don't be shy. Question your doctors. Right. Look things up. Question your doctors. And I want to emphasize, I really got wonderful care at this major medical center. I got wonderful care. But it did require some close attention at a couple of points because, like you said, doctors are human. And our brains are wired to jump to conclusions, whether it's a diagnostic first impression that might be wrong or, you know, the need to operate, you know, if you're a surgeon. But it all worked out. It worked out wonderfully, and I've probably gotten as much back as... I've gotten more back than I expected to get, actually. So. Thank you. This is a story that so many people can learn from. Thank you very much. It's been a privilege to tell it, and I hope some people get some benefit from it. Doug's complicated story suggests how to cope with a medical catastrophe and reminds all of us of the importance of asking physicians the right questions persistently and never taking a passive stance when we seek treatment. Thank you for listening to Lifespan. Lifespan is a production of WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our executive producer and audio engineer. I'm your host and executive producer, Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University. For more information about Lifespan, go to woub.org listen.